0: Welcome to the Compass Church podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, the ministry of Compass Church New your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's word to be challenged and changed. Hey, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving as Gabe said and you ate way too much cuz one day that you can do that. I'm Tim Jacobs, the lead pastor here at Compass and I am super excited about the fact that you're here today. A lot of you are here today. This is really good. Good for you. This is like one of the big fears when you're a pastor on holiday weekends. It's like, it's going to be me and the worship team and a bunch of crickets and, you know, and dust and empty chairs. So it's just great to see so many of you guys. And uh, any Black Friday shoppers here? Did you actually survive? Did you do it? Not. No, no. None of you guys went shopping on Black Friday. Even We, we went out later on at, at, at night because after all the crazies. And uh, it was great, but as we head into the Christmas season, our goal as the preaching team over the next several weeks is going to convince you without a shadow of a doubt that the greatest gift that you could ever receive in all of your life is the gift of Jesus. Now, I know that sounds trite, or it's easy to say, and it's like that's the Sunday school answer, like, you know, and the little kid's like, what's the greatest gift in the world? Jesus! because you're supposed to say that, even though you don't necessarily think it's true. But I want you to be convinced without a shadow of a doubt that, that even better than the, the big screen TV that you could wrestle out of the old lady's hands at 3 a.m. at the Walmart on Black Friday, you know? Even better than that, even better than the toy that your kid wants with the 6,000 parts and five of them are missing and it takes you forever to assemble it. That whole thing, I can tell, I have been there, done that in my life. Even better than that, the one thing that everybody wants, that Jesus is better than that. That Jesus is the only and greatest gift that you could ever truly want and need in your entire life. And it's not just because God became man. It's not just that Jesus came in a manger and there's all the folklore, you know, that we have like the angels and the shepherds and Mary and Joseph in the stable and the camels and the donkeys and whatever else and all of that stuff and the little kids do the little plays. and, And sometimes we think that's what it is, but that truly the very fact of Jesus, the very fact that he is here, the very fact that he arrived on the earth opens up certain possibilities to us that were not available before. Among them is the idea that because of the fact of Jesus, you and I have peace with God. We can have peace with God because one of the roles that Jesus plays among many is he plays the role of a mediator. A mediator, a peacemaker. In fact, the word mediator, if you were to say, what is a mediator? It is someone who, is, who reconciles a dispute between two parties. An arbiter. Someone who gets between two sides that are warring and brings them to some sense of peace this is what a mediator does. Maybe you have experience in your own life playing the role of a mediator, getting between two sides, and it's a very difficult role to play, especially when there's one side who is clearly in the right, and one side who's clearly in the wrong, and you're trying to figure out a way for them to come together. It's a difficult role to play, but Jesus Being both God and man is the unique character in all of history nobody else could have possibly played the role of mediator that he played. So who is he a mediator between? Well very simply he is a mediator between God and us. He goes between God and us and without him we would forever be in conflict with God we never would have been able to solve the dispute that exists between you and me and God. So then we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the nature of this conflict? But before we do, just so you know, what, that, what I'm saying is rooted in some kind of truth. In the Bible, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, it says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. And so there's this conflict that we have, and what is the nature of this conflict? Well, put very simply, God created us to love him, to serve him, to obey him, to acknowledge him, to be captivated by him, to pursue him and him alone throughout the course of our lives, because we are made for his pleasure. We are made for his purpose. And the Bible says that even though that's why we were made, we did exactly the opposite. We have lived lives not acknowledging him, in disobedience to him, and elevating ourselves above him in our own ways, and doing what is right in our own eyes, and that condition is what is called sin. And so the the, the wedge between God and you and me, the wedge can be best described as sin, and it is Permanent in a sense of you, you, there's, there's, it's a big, big problem. You cannot fix it unless we have some type of solution. Now, I was trying to explain this several months ago to many of your kids during vacation Bible school. You know that crazy week that we do once a year every summer, where we have all these kids running around at night and 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 it's like just total pandemonium. And there's the the whole place is, you know, there's like crazy gooey stuff all over the floor, and your kids come home with all kinds of crap. It's just, it's really fun. But in the whole process of that week, the our children's ministry people, um, and Plug for Children's Ministry, they're amazing. And if you want to be amazing, you should become a children's ministry volunteer as well. Um, they're always looking for people. But they were, they were trying, they're always trying to be able to get these concepts into your kids' heads. So they asked me to come in for a brief period of time, and w- when they had their big large group, and talk to basically second and third graders about what sin is. Now, that's kind of a hard thing to do, right? Like, how do you tell a third grader? How do you help a third grader or a second grader understand sin? And so I told them all, basically, as well as I could, that when I was their age, I wanted to be Superman really badly. In fact, I had the cape. I had the underoos. Remember underoos? Remember underoos, right? They were like, they were like underwear that you could wear because, but because they had like the little symbols of the superheroes, they weren't, it wasn't really underwear. I mean, you could wear it like outside, you know what I mean? Like, which I did. So I ran around in my underwear because it was just not regular underwear. It was like red because it was a Superman kind of underwear. You know, they always wore those kind of... And then I had, you know, the cape that my grandma made and I would climb on the top of my monkey bars and I would jump off the monkey bars in my backyard and I would try to fly because I, in my mind, thought I was capable of being Superman. In fact, I saw myself as a superhero. I'm like, I, I can be Superman. I can be like that. I'm almost, I'm really close to him. Mean, I'm not quite Superman, but I'm, I'm on my way, right? I, so this is why I'm telling your kids. I'm like, I saw myself as Superman. That's who I saw myself as being. However, my actions proved a little bit different. I was the kid who um, would go into my little brother's room, my little brother, Matt, who's in the video booth, um, does a lot of our videos here, most of our videos. And when he was younger than I was, and still is, and I, I would go into his room, and my brother had a drum set in his room, and I liked to go in there, and he was a very, very heavy sleeper, and I, I was woke up really early, and I would love to go into his room on Saturday mornings, and I go in there early, and I would grab his drumsticks, and I would count to three in my head, and then I would bang on the drums real loud and say, "You're late for school! Get up! You're late for school!" Right? And then I watch him go, oh. <laughs> like waking up, like, "Oh, what's happening?" You know? And I would you know, I would run out of the room and he'd go, "I hate you!" And I'm like, "Yeah!" You know? And I felt so good. And then, and then later on, I went to school one time, and I brought a water balloon to math class because I hated math class, and I still don't like math. And, and so I brought a water balloon to math class because I was bored, and I rolled it out into the middle of the classroom where everyone could see. And my, my math teacher, who, who when she saw the balloon, she was so overcome with anger that she didn't look closely at the balloon, because she just thought it was a regular balloon. And she didn't know it was a water balloon. And so she went over it with an anger-filled heart, and she stomped on it as hard as she could, and she blew water all over the classroom and all over her leg, And I thought I had conquered the world! I did that! And I was like, yeah! And then there was this poor girl later on, her name was Danielle. I remember she's a cute little girl, and she had this really like thick, wavy, curly hair. She had it pulled back with one of those little clips up like this. But she had one nice, curly, thick strand that kind of went down like this, you know, back in the 80s. You know? And 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 it and it went down, it was beautiful. And I and I remember I grabbed some scissors and I and I went over to her hair, and I said, hold still. And, and she's like, what are you doing? I said, no, no, I promise. I won't cut it. I won't cut it. And then snip. I cut like that much of her hair off of her head. And I had to write a letter home to my mom about that. But here's the point. Yeah, you're like, I hate this guy, man. Then <laughs> you're a pastor? <laughs> like, what's wrong with you? Which is funny, because your kids were like, they were, came up to me. They're like, Pastor Tim, how could you? You know, like later on, they're like, I can't believe that you do that. But but here's the problem, I, I saw myself as a superhero. Through my own eyes, I was great. I had my cape, I was jumping off the monkey bars. I was like that much off of perfection. I just needed to get the flying thing down. But my actions reflected something quite different. I thought I was a blessing to the world when in fact, as a child, I was quite a menace. And I hurt and disrupted the lives of many people around me. And so Paul captures this in a series of Old Testament passages that he strings together and writes in his book of Romans. And he says this, describing people like me and people like you, that despite how you might see yourself or you how you might feel about the justice of your cause or the righteousness that exists inside your heart. He says this, none is righteous. No, not one, not even you. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Oh, give peace a chance. You don't know the first thing about peace is what this is happening here. What Paul is saying. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And of course, all of this then culminates in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, where it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is to miss the mark, to fail, to to attempt for something, but to not be able to make it. No one has been able to achieve that objective for which they were created by God to achieve. And that is everybody. And then you can keep on going all day long to just add to the pile. Ecclesiastes 7.20, surely there is not a right righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. And perhaps I think one of my favorite verses to describe the human condition is Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I don't even understand this deceitfulness and this evil. And why is this so important? Because it drives a wedge between us and God. And you know, it's so funny because there was this person, and I'll try to keep this vague, but I saw them on social media and they don't go to our church. But, but there had been some spat that had arisen between two people that my wife and I knew on social media during this whole political thing. And, and it just it resulted in defriending and anger and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and this one individual comes back a few hours later and posts this thing, this, this uh, little post on, on social media that says, that says, I know I'm a good person. I know when I look inside myself, I see goodness and I try hard and I work hard and I do what's right and people love me. It was almost like the Saturday Night Live thing, you know, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough and it was kind of like that. And the problem is it is so foolish because you look at something like that and you say, if that's how you see yourself, then you can never be wrong. You can never, you're not at fault, then you're the victim. And that, collides head on with what scripture says about what's really going on with us. Many people will say, well, the reason I am the way I am is because of what someone else has done to me. If it wasn't for my parents, if it wasn't for that person, that ex-husband or that ex-wife, if it wasn't for that teacher, if it wasn't for that boss, I wouldn't be the way that I am. But please hear me. You may be the victim of other people's sin, but you are the perpetrator of your own. You may be the victim of someone else's evil actions towards you, but you are responsible for your own, and there are many actions to which you and I are responsible. So what do we do? Well, you know, have you ever seen like those Western movies, and I can't think of a specific one, but you know, it's like one of the common lines before like one guy is about to shoot another guy, Is like, hey. You better make your peace with God. Right? People like to say that. And you think, well, I'm going to make my peace with God. Here's the problem. You cannot make peace with God. That's the good news. Or bad news. There's bad news and good news. Bad news is you cannot make peace with God. The good news is God has made peace with you. Please hear that. You can't make peace with God that's the problem. The solution is God has made peace with you. How does that work? By the way, since the very beginning, it's been happening. How's it work? Well, from the very beginning, God instituted in the Israelite nation what was called a sacrificial system. So when you would sin, when you would mess up, when you would do something wrong or wicked or evil or whatever else, when you would break one of the laws that God had written down to say this is what it was, there's the Ten Commandments or other aspects of the Mosaic Law, the Law of Moses, when you did something, an offense against God or an offense against your community, there was a way for you that God provided to make it right. And a lot of it was wrapped up in this idea of a sacrificial system. So what you would do is... And it's written about in Leviticus. So one of the things you would do, for example, is you would take an animal like a goat. But it couldn't just be any goat. It had to be a good goat. Like a goat that was without blemish. Like a good looking goat. So you had to go to a goat store. Whoever had a goat. If you had a goat, great. But if you didn't, you had to go find one. And it couldn't just be a bad goat. It had to be a good goat. And you would take the goat to a place called the tent of meeting where the priests would be. And you would present the goat to the priests. And when you presented the goat to the priest, you would put your hand on the head of the goat and your sin would be transferred from you to the goat. So the goat would bear your sin. The goat would become your sin and your guilt would shift from you and now the goat is in essence guilty. And so the priest would then accept that goat and on behalf of God tell you that your sins are forgiven because of this and then summarily he would take the the goat and put it on the altar and cut it up and burn it And sacrifice it, and slaughter slaughter the goat. The goat would be slaughtered, and then certain parts would be burned. And the smoke coming from the altar would be said to be a pleasing aroma to God. And why? Because it was an indication of the fact that a sacrifice had been made for your sin. You can read about it if you ever read the book of Leviticus, which you don't normally read the book of Leviticus unless you have like insomnia. But. It's pretty good when you think about it from the whole concept of what does it mean to follow the path that God laid out to remove guilt from a person. So listen to what it says in Leviticus chapter one. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now the word atonement means to cover. So this this sacrifice would serve certain purposes. First of all, it would be a substitute for you. It would take your place. It would be an atonement, a covering for you. And it would be, but it would have to come from you. It would be something that you would bring. It would be connected to you in that sense. There's a guy named Millard Erickson, a a theologian who described it like this. This, their whole culture of sacrifices. One was delivered from punishment by the interposing of something between one's sin and God. You see that? God then saw the atoning sacrifice rather than the sin. The covering of the sin meant that the penalty no longer had to be exacted from the sinner. So you were free to go. But imagine for a minute what that would be like, though. Seriously, I mean, unless you actually work with these kinds of animals, or you're in the butcher trade, we don't really, or you do like a lot of hunting and stuff, you don't really get that close to the idea of animals being slaughtered. And you can imagine for a moment, doing something wrong, like committing some kind of sin. You lied, you stole something, you know, you lashed out in anger and whatever, and you caused some, you, you did something that was clearly your fault. So you'd bring this animal to the priest, and if you could imagine putting yourself in that position and actually laying your hand on that head of the goat, having the little goat eyes look up at you, like, hey, are we going to get some food? We gonna go run around, play goat games? No. No, the reason you're here, Mr. Goat, is because of me. What's about to happen to you is not your fault. And you could see and feel and be in this existential three-dimensional reality, your sin that was maybe committed and started immaterially in your heart, in your soul as a desire from within is now has to be reconciled and dealt with in the physical real world. And you would watch as that priest would then rip the life out of that goat and burn what was left over because of what you did. And it's more than just simply like, "Ah, I messed up, sorry God. I'm sorry God, God's like, yeah, it's cool, man. I mean, everybody makes mistakes, right? Well, just, you know, bygones be bygones, water under the bridge. No, 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 it didn't work like that. It's never worked like that. God is holy and eternal. And there's a gravity that comes from knowing that we were made in His image to serve and love Him, and we violate that, there must be some. It's, it would be like if a little child. Last week we went out. Um, we were over at the at the mall, and uh, earlier in the in the week, and and uh, over in Scottsdale, and somebody had a this beautiful blue Lamborghini. I mean, it was amazing. And my son was like, "Oh, I'm like stay in school, son," you know. Um, and uh, anyway, because they ain't coming by way of inheritance, and. Now, imagine this Lamborghini. Imagine if, if, if some little kid had come up with a baseball and just thrown that thing through the window, you know, and shattered the window. Now, the guy who owns the Lamborghini could say, Hey, you know, that's okay. It's cool. You're a kid. You don't know what you're doing. But someone's got to pay. And the kid himself might say, I want to pay. I want to pay. Hey, I appreciate it, little Johnny. I appreciate the fact that you feel bad about the fact that you broke the window of a Lamborghini. But you're five years old. You can't pay for this. You cannot pay for this. Your good intentions are, are noted, but they're not sufficient. To make right what's been made wrong. Here's the problem the culture of the Israelites. Would exist. So you, from the time you're born to the time you died, you would live in the culture understanding that sin always requires a, a sacrifice. That to forgive sin always costs blood. So you would have this as part of your consciousness all the time. It was wired in just as much as American as apple pie and baseball is wired into your consciousness now. So it was who you were, it was how you thought, it was your whole uh, sense of understanding the relationship between you and God. That God loves you, you sin against him, he's provided a way. But here's the problem. It never actually worked. It never actually was the mechanism for forgiveness. It never could be. All it did was picture what needed to be done. But it never actually in and of itself, provided forgiveness. All it was, was a living and real and powerful illustration. That's all it was, that's all it could ever be. And this is proven in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says this, this is lengthy, but it's good. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities. you So the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What is he saying? He goes, it was a cool idea, it was a cool picture, but in and of itself, it didn't work. Otherwise would they have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have any consciousness of sin? In other words, they had to go back every year and every year and do it again and again and again and it was never really complete. It was never really final. It was always ongoing. It was always burned into their consciousness as part of their culture and their life. Verse three, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. And here we go, here's the kicker. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Never worked. So then how were Israelites saved? Theologian Wayne Grudem describes it this way. Through the sacrificial system, believers were accepted by God only on the basis, catch this, of the future work of Christ foreshadowed by that system. In other words, the only way that these things could have ever have been proven true or effective would be if Jesus Christ himself actually shed his own innocent blood as God and man, our intermediary, our sacrifice, and our priest in our place, and only that way, would it be actually possible for these sacrifices to even mean anything at all? For without the reality of a Jesus, if there were not a baby in a manger, then all that Old Testament stuff is absolutely worthless. And all these people are still guilty and still stuck in their sin. Because the blood of bulls and goats can't forgive sin, because it's just a bull and a goat. Who cares? But when the sacrifice is the innocent Son of God, the innocent Jesus Christ... This is why, by the way, the imagery is so important. So when there's a goat without blemish, why does it have to be a goat without, why do we have to pay extra for a really good goat if we're just gonna kill it anyway? Because the picture is important that the only sacrifice that we that's possibly even worthy has to be a person without blemish. Who is what? Jesus, he's the only one without blemish. He's the only one who ever did it right. He's the only one who ever lived this life right. He's the only one who ever got it right. And because of him, because of his innocence, because of his purity, because of his obedience, He's the only acceptable sacrifice on our behalf. So we lay our hand on his head and our sin is transferred from us to him. And he is executed for us. Because Jesus became our high priest, this is the thing I want you to get you don't get anything else we have complete confidence that our sins are forgiven and that we have peace with god because jesus became our high priest because he is our intermediary because he is the go-between and we need an intermediary because of him and only because of him we can be confident that our sins are forgiven and that we actually have true and real and substantive and reliable peace with God. There's no other way it could have possibly happened and the Old Testament testifies to that with picture after picture after picture of foreshadowing after foreshadowing so when he arrived people went holy cow this is this this is this it makes sense now. How do we know? Look again at Hebrews chapter 10, down a few verses, starting with verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, listen to this, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Let that sink in. Your redemption is eternal because he is eternal. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, you are free from your sin. You are liberated from the shame and the guilt and the, you know, the, 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 the wearing or the identification with all the things that you've done with your life. All that is behind you and you're free to serve God. And so I wanna put that slide back up that we had a minute ago, that because Jesus became our high priest, we have complete confidence that our sins are forgiven and that we have peace with God. So what do we do with this? Well, there's several things that we do. Number one, because Jesus is my mediator, because of the reality of this, number one, every sin is covered, even the big ones. See, we gotta get some things straight here, my friends. So <clears throat> I read an article in the Huffington Post last week. I'm not a big fan of the Huffington Post, to be honest with you. But I read it occasionally because, you know, I don't know. Sometimes to me, it's like a car crash. You know, you just can't help but Like, what's going on over there? Um, so, sorry, but that's just how I feel. So, um, I was reading the Huffington Post, but they had a very good article, interesting article, about the Pope. And it made an announcement about the Pope's announcement. And it says this, I quote, Pope Francis on Monday Extended indefinitely to all Roman Catholic priests the power to forgive abortion, a right previously reserved for bishops or special confessors in most parts of the world. What? What? Wait a second. The Pope gave to all priests, the power to forgive abortion. I'm sorry. What have we been spending the last half hour talking about? Have we not been reading like 85,000 verses about how sin is forgiven and who is responsible for forgiving sin? I'm sorry, but Um, With all due respect, sir, I appreciate the charitable gesture, but last time I checked, it was not in the power of human beings to give power to forgive sin. I thought in order to be able to delegate something, you first had to have it yourself. But when I read the New Testament, even the scribes who were responsible, they were the spiritual know-it-alls, the scribes who hated Jesus and were responsible partially for getting him crucified. Even they knew this because when Jesus was going around telling people their sins were forgiven, listen to what they they said. They said to him, they said, what is this? Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Even those guys got it. Now, if if you come from a Catholic background, I am not trying to come after you. I am not trying to, believe me, I'm not trying to insult Catholicism at all. I am trying to point out a serious problem that we have women walking around who feel the guilt of the sin of abortion and want to make it right with God, wish that they could be forgiven and do not think they can be forgiven because they think the power to forgive is in the hands of a human being? What are we doing here? What is wrong with this picture? I'm sorry, but who do these people think that they are? Have you not read what the scripture says about how sins are forgiven? I have news for you women. If you committed the sin of abortion, you made a terrible choice. But I probably don't need to tell you that. You probably already know it. And we can spend hours trying to like, you know, you, you can spend all this time trying to justify, well, it's just tissue and it wasn't really a person and, and, and good. Let, let's just, let's not kid ourselves. Let's not kid ourselves. Because we're trying to assuage guilt. No, that's not the way that we do it. That's not the way that we do. We don't change reality. It's not going to work. If you committed abortion, you committed a terrible sin. And you know it. But my dear women, if you had an abortion, you don't need to go find some dude who may or may not let you be forgiven. I don't know what religion that is, but that ain't what we read out of here. No, ladies, loved by God, created by God. You lay your hand on the head of your Savior and he becomes the sin of abortion. And he lifts that from you. And it is gone from you. And you are covered by his blood. And he bears in his body what you've done so that you walk free. And it does not take me or some celibate dude in a robe to tell you that. You rest on that because of what has been written and what has been done for you already. Because Jesus is my mediator, I have confidence that every sin can be forgiven, even the big ones. We go on about the big ones because there's some bad ones. There's some real bad ones. And you committed one of those bad ones, and you think, "Well, I don't know if I'll ever be forgiven." You don't know what you're talking about. You know nothing about Christianity. You don't know squat. You haven't read your Bible. I don't know what religion you're a part of, but it ain't this. It's some weird funky man-made religion that you just created in your own mind that has nothing to do with scripture. It may have a you know, it may have made dressed up like Christianity, but it's not Christianity. What kind of what kind of what kind of terrible religion is that? Well, I don't know if I can be forgiven cuz this was really bad. Who, who what is that? This a religion like that would would change the world. Because Jesus is my mediator number 2. I'm strong in his grace. You be strong in his grace. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. You then be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Hey, how about this? Hey, look at that. Let's, let's read that together. Ready? One, two, three you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Can I tell you one of the most frustrating things about being a pastor? Is, at least for me, is I, I, I love you guys and I don't understand why, why so many of us don't understand this basic concept. We know that we're supposed to do good things if we want God to love us, and which is not even true in and of itself. But we think that, and so we play the religion game, and we come to church and we do. But we, for some reason, we miss the forgiveness part, and we keep trying to live our our sins down as though we haven't actually been forgiven. What it says right here: be strong in the grace of Jesus. And I tell you what: you know what I want for this church? I don't want a bunch of 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 of, uh, of insecure scared, legalistic, Little Christians who aren't really sure they've been forgiven, so they run around going, "Gosh, have I really been forgiven? I don't know. I still feel bad." And so you turn into these insecure, kind of scared, worried. I don't know if I die. Would, I, would God really accept me? I don't know. You know, because I've been really bad. And was He? Would He really love me? Would he, like, why are you even thinking that? Why? And then so what happens is you start becoming legalistic because you start going, "Well, maybe I'm not as bad as that person. I'm not bad as that person." And then you start becoming gossipy, and the church becomes a place that lacks love because everyone's insecure about where they stand with God, and we are not going to have a church like that. We will never have a church like that. We'll have a bunch of people here with spectacular sins, with great stories of rebellion against God, who've done horribly stupid things, but are confident in the forgiveness that has been given to them because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so you walk around and you say, I may have done that, but that's not who I am. That's what I was. And so how does this apply? It applies everywhere. So those of you who are married, men, The way that you love your wife is you see her through the eyes of her savior and you're not critical of her and you're not reminding her of all the stuff she did in the past. You're reminding her of the forgiveness that's been given to her. So when she feels doubtful, when she feels insecure, when she has little voices in her head of insecurity and and feeling like this and feeling like that and the reminders of, of all the things that she wishes she hadn't done, you step in and you say, do you not remember who Jesus is and what he's done? You've placed your hand on his head. He's taken your sin. You are forgiven and I don't see you through those eyes. I see you through his eyes of righteousness. That's how you spiritually lead your wife, guys. And women, it's the same thing. You aren't critical of him and condescending of him. You see him through the eyes of a Savior. He may have been quite an idiot for much of his life, but when he came to Jesus, when he came to Jesus, he was declared righteous and holy and innocent and pure as a child of God. And you remind him of that, And you say, I don't see you as you were. I see you as you are. That's how we do this, guys. That's how healing comes. It doesn't come with endless amounts of medication and counseling. And prayer groups. I love prayer groups. It's wonderful to pray. But you've got to be strong in the grace and you've got to move on. And you've got to say, that's what we were. This is who we are. And you train your kids up to understand that. And you train your friends up to understand that. And that's the kind of church that we become, which is why we bought more chairs for the auditorium, because we're inviting more people to hear the message of grace, because nothing else out there is working. Because it can't. So the last thing I'd like to say to you is this. Grace is available to you no matter who you are and what you've done, because it's not about you. You cannot make peace with God, but God has made peace with you. You ever heard the phrase beyond the pale? They like to say this a lot, like I, I, when I listen to like political commentary, people will say, you know, so-and-so said this, that was just beyond the pale, you know? And it means like, it was so bad that it's just, you, it's completely irredeemable. This would beyond the pale mean. The word, the phrase beyond the pale, as I understand it, is an African phrase. It comes from a, an African uh, concept where, you know, a lot of places in Africa, they don't have electricity. And so when it gets dark, they light a fire. And the people in the village come around the fire so they can see. But those who are bad, those who are, who've done evil and wrong things, are banished from the fire because they don't want to see their face. They're not allowed to come to the light, so they're beyond the pale of the light. These are people who are seen as completely unacceptable. And all I want you to hear is this. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, whatever situation that you're in, it may be quite terrible, but you are never too far from the light. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here today and you say, I need a Savior, I want you to take a moment right where you are, between you and God, and say, God, You made a way of peace. I'm placing my hand on the head of your innocent son. And I'm asking him to be my savior. I'm asking him to take my sin. Fully acknowledging that because of that he had to be sacrificed. Today I want to follow jesus today i want to be identified with him today i want to be clean i want to be pure i want to be washed away from this guilt and i want to know without a shadow of a doubt that the forgiveness is done and paid for and i am i will commit today to stop dragging myself through the gutter because the punishment has already been made so today i become a christian Others of us today, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you sure aren't acting like one. You're acting like some religious person who's dragging yourself through the mud and keeps wondering in your heart whether God will really forgive you or receive you. No confidence at all in the power of God to rescue you. So you've been in that process of wishful thinking, insecurity, a little bit of legalism, not strong in the grace. I want you to tell God right now, God, I'm sorry for that. I sold you so short. I've tried to put you in a box that I could, I could understand. Tried to import you into my world and that was wrong. You are so far beyond me and your love is so far beyond and high, anything I, higher than anything I can imagine. And I am sorry for that. And so I'm going to be strong in the grace. God, you know my heart. You know my life. You know I've screwed up royally in so many areas. But God, I walk out of here confident that your death was sufficient. That you stood in my place. That you yourself were the intermediary. And I'm free. God, we, as, I sit, as I sit here and we, we pray together, God, we just we have the best content in the world when it comes to faith. I mean, no, there's, not, not, there's not a world religion that comes close to this. Not one. Nothing comes close to the richness of what you have provided for us. And so we embrace it and we commit to be people who will have it on our lips and live it in our lives because it is real and it is solid and it is something to be proud of. Thank you that we can follow you because you've made a way. In Jesus' name, amen thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for him. To find out more about our church online, go to www.cobuschurch.info and we'll see you next time.